On air, online, on digital, digital, and the ABC Listen app. The Country Hour with Tony Briscoe on ABC Radio Hobart and ABC Northern Tasmania. Coming up today, a new way of monitoring water quality for oyster growers. What we've got is a, an ISCO auto sampler. So it's a device that's going to sit out on the water uh, and take samples based on automatic data that comes through on the boxes that we build. Uh, so it will sit and take up to 24 samples over a certain amount of time uh, that the growers will then go out and collect. And the French rose breeder whose flowers are grown in northern Tasmania. It's like sending your child to, uh, to a school abroad. And you, you come, you go check them, and they, they, they change. They are different, but they are the same. So they grow up, they're being handled by somebody else. It's, it's fantastic. Breeding roses in France and growing them in Tasmania. That story coming up later today. And the oyster industry has a new way of measuring water quality in times of heavy rainfall. That's coming up for you shortly. G'day, Tony, with you on this midweek Wednesday, which does mean Richard Bailey and the livestock markets. And in just a moment, some bad news for the dairy industry with a major player about to close three Australian processing plants. Thankfully, though, not in Tasmania. We'll check the latest on the weather and take your thoughts on any issue via the text line 0438 922 936. That number 0438 922 First, some big news in the dairy industry. Several dairy processing facilities in Tasmania and on King Island have been spared following the latest announcements today by one of the big dairy companies. Dairy giant Saputo has announced it will shut one dairy factory and close some operations at two others as declining milk production in Australia hits its bottom line. A factory at Mafra in Gippsland will close. A powder line at Leangatha will shut, along with the cheese packing operations at Millel in South Australia. Leanne Cutts, President and Chief Operating Officer, International and Europe at Saputo, says or spoke at least to Warwick Long a short time ago. Yes, today we've announced some consolidation initiatives which are looking to improve our overall efficiency and competitiveness. So they do impact the number of our sites um, across, our, some, uh, across our network in Australia. So MAFRA will be shut? Lee and Gatha will lose its powder line and Millel in South Australia will lose its cheese packaging area. Is that correct? Correct. And Warwick, many of those impacted production and packaging functions at those three facilities will be absorbed or integrated into other facilities across the network. Um, and it's business as usual for our customers and consumers. So they can still buy the brands that they love, whether it's Devendal or Cheer or King Island. So no change to to the products and brands. Can you tell us where you're planning on, on moving or absorbing those other facilities to, the, the factories that will pick up the slack? All of this will happen over the, the, first, the first three months of 2023. Is this the start of consolidation from Saputo or should the Australian market expect further consolidation to come? Well, we're always reviewing uh, a network. Uh, to look at optimization opportunities uh, because we want to make sure we continue to be like efficient um, and strengthen our position. We're a high-quality, low-cost processor, and the actions that we've taken today will continue to be able to develop that within the Australian market. You know, we're committed to the Australian dairy industry. Uh, we value, we want every litre of milk. Um, so we, we're focused on putting it into those products and markets that offer the highest return. 
So should Lee and Gatha or Malel be worried that they will be set for closure soon, like MAFRA is being announced today? We're always reviewing the network, uh, Warwick, and so we'll continue to do that. We do that as part of our global strategic plan. We do that across all the divisions, uh, and Australia is no, no exception. At the same time, said, you know, every litre of milk is really important to us, and we want to make sure we put it to the best possible use. Their future could be in the balance. Well, we're, you know, we're always reviewing. So that's something that we do across all of our sites. Um, you know, it's, it's, it's no exception, Warwick. How many jobs will go as part of this restructure? You know, our priority is supporting employees. Uh, it is a difficult time. This was a difficult decision. Uh, approximately 75 employees will be impacted. Uh, it was one, a decision that we didn't take easily. Uh, we're acutely aware of the impacts to our employees. And so our immediate focus is to support our teams through this period. That includes discussing redeployment and retraining opportunities. And where those alternative roles may not be available, then obviously our impacted employers will be provided with the appropriate severance and outplacement support. Do you have an, a breakdown of, of where the jobs will go? For example, I believe sort of 18 to 20 staff were left at, at MAFRA. Can you provide further details on that? Not at this time. I said, you know, we're, we're focusing at the moment, really. Our immediate focus today is on supporting the, the teams through this period. When will the MAFRA site close? All this is going to happen over the first three months of 2023. So we're in discussion now on that. And when Samputo bid to buy Murray Goulburn, it made a commitment to keep operating MAFRA for five years. This closure would be right around that deadline. Did, did that commitment form part of your decision-making here? When we, when we, when we acquired the Murray Goulburn at the time, we made, you know, we're, we obviously were also looking at, um, the, at the overall milk production in Australia. Um, and we know that nationally the industry continues to adapt to that declining milk pool. Um, it, there, there is intense competition for milk. Um, and at the same time, Australia's high quality milk is still in really strong demand worldwide. So our, our review shows actually a smaller milk pool can still be really profitable for us. And that's why we want to focus on maximising that value of every litre. Saputo, by the sounds of it, is still confident in its position in Australia. You still have plans for Australia. Absolutely. That's Leanne Cutts, President and Chief Operating Officer, International in Europe. It's Saputo speaking there to Warwick Long about the closure of the Mafra plant in Gippsland and the closure of the powder line at Leongatha and the Millel cheese packaging plant, which is in South Australia. Saputo processing plants in Tasmania and on King Island are not affected by the latest announcements from the company. A consortium of farmers, industry and scientists is launching a bid to massively expand Australia's hemp crop. The hemp CRC bid is asking the federal government to match $50 million worth of support already pledged by industry to establish a cooperative research centre to reverse what it says is 80 years of neglect. The bid's interim chief executive, University of Southern Queensland Professor Gavin Ash, has told Kelly Buchanan he wants to see the national crop expanded from the current 2,300 hectares to more than 100,000 hectares over the next decade. Every year the Commonwealth Government releases a bid for large initiatives. And these initiatives can be built around a crop or a process or some rather large issue that's happening 
in the country. There's an opportunity here, we see, for hemp to be grown in Australia because of the changes in legislation and also watching what's going on around the world and what the opportunities are for the use of hemp in a whole range of things. Where is the opportunity when it comes to hemp? What could we see produced here? So hemp is one of these wonder crops. We can use hemp for nutrition, we can use it for medicine, we can use it in cosmetics, we can use it in animals and humans, we can use it in building materials, so we can use it to replace plastics. We can sequester as much carbon in a hemp field as a young pine forest, a 10-year-old pine forest does, only in 120 days. So is it purely its association with marijuana that's held it back so far? Absolutely. There was a, a problem with hemp competing with cotton. And so the cotton industry with some uh, nasty friends, not necessarily the cotton industry itself, actually had a campaign against hemp. That stopped hemp production around the world for 80 years. So we have 80 years worth of research to catch up on everywhere around the world and to use this crop in so many different ways. Are you feeling the turning point? Absolutely. The situation is that everybody feels now is the time for this. We, we have to look at these shortened supply chains. We have to be able to be self-sufficient, but we have to be able to develop crops that will feed, nourish and clothe our current generations. So we can use, for example, in a textile industry, we can have hemp clothing. This is very much similar to linen clothing that you can have, but it's biodegradable or compostable. And so we're talking about being able to get the full extent of use from your clothes over time, so keeping them out of garbage heaps around the world. We can also use hemp to build houses. So we can use it mixed with concrete. Hempcrete will continue to absorb carbon dioxide out of the air even after the building's built. So these are carbon-negative buildings. Some of these other compounds that are in hemp, CBDs, some of these can help people in terms of rheumatoid arthritis, treating people for pain, treating appetite for cancer patients. There is research on the effect on endometriosis and brain injury. There's a whole range of these types of compounds that are just sitting there waiting for the development to actually bring those to market. How large is the gap in our knowledge about how to grow it, how to do it successfully, how to commercialise it, how to transition existing farming systems into growing it? It's, it's a, a big hill to climb. We do have varieties in Australia that are suited to Australian conditions, but we can do better. We can do varieties that produce grain, varieties that produce fibre, varieties that produce both. And so there's an opportunity to put this into existing farming systems. So we could have it in anywhere you can grow sorghum, where you're growing sugarcane, or where you're growing cotton. And it could be in-season rotation or another crop because it grows so quickly, 120 days. And is it a case of something like the CRC would give farmers confidence that they had the same agronomic backing and understanding of that crop as they do crops like sugarcane that they are familiar with having grown for the past 80 years? Yeah, so we're, we've actually got a whole program built around growing the plant, so behind the farm gate. So what are the supports that farmers need? What are the varieties that farmers need? What are the varietal packages that they need to give them confidence in how to grow it? But we're also building those supply chains. So uh, what's the opportunity in animal food, in human food, in clothing, in construction, so that those industries will be growing along with the production and so giving them that conduit to a market straight away. So both the push and the pull factors. 
So what's it going to take to get this bid off the ground? So at the moment we've been pulling together whole groups of industry partners. So at the moment we have over 50 industry partners who are interested in investing in this CRC where we'll be then going to the Australian government and asking for dollar for dollar. So we're looking at a total value of the hemp CRC of $200 million over 10 years. We think that's the sort of money, that's the sort of time that's needed to get that hemp industry on an even keel and make it so it's a sustainable crop for Australian farmers. And what's the time frame? When will you know whether the government's going to back this idea? So we're waiting at the moment for the government to call around. Uh, usually they call around, this, there's two parts around, a phase one and a phase two. In any normal year, it would be starting in the middle of next year. We're still waiting on the government to make that call. That's Hemp CRC Bid Interim Chief Executive Gavin Ash speaking there to Callie Buchanan about moves to greatly expand the hemp industry in Australia. Big plans, they're looking to increase the hemp crop to 100,000 hectares over the next decade. Currently about 2,300 hectares of hemp are being grown in the country. So big ideas and uh, a big outlook for the hemp industry if it all happens. Now, just got to let you know, the Giving Tree Appeal launches this weekend. The uh, launch is on Saturday and you can join us at the ABC Hobart Studios as we celebrate over 30 years of the Giving Tree. There will be a live broadcast to launch the appeal hosted by Rick Goddard and Lucy Braden. With special guests and live music, you you can bring your friends and family along between 10 o'clock and midday this Saturday to the Hobart Studios. Take a special photo with a giant ABC Christmas tree and also make a donation to the ABC Giving Tree Appeal. Just a reminder, we're requesting online donations this year instead of physical gifts and you'll be able to donate online from the 12th of November from this Saturday. And if you need more information, visit abc.net.au forward slash giving tree for all of those details. Still to come on the Country Hour, a new way of monitoring water quality for oyster growers. Your afternoon. What is the closest you've come to a lion? Uh, the Serengeti oh. in Africa. With Helen Shields. There was a toilet and it was just a, um, a bucket, basically. I kid you not, a lion came within metres of where we were and there's a lady in the toilet and she just put her head up and she had to stay in the toilet. She's just standing there just absolutely packing it. <laughs> Your afternoon. Kind of the perfect place to be for that, I suppose. On ABC Radio Hobart. It's the Country Hour with Tony Briscoe on ABC Radio Hobart and ABC Northern Tasmania. Oh four three eight nine double two nine three six is that text line number if you'd like to stay in touch. Plenty of beautiful roses right around Tasmania at the moment. Uh, the roses are blooming beautifully and uh, we'll talk about roses, a special breed of roses from France being grown in Tasmania a little bit later in the program. But to the oyster industry now, and the Tasmanian oyster industry has just deployed new technology to better understand pollution risks running into the estuaries during rainfall events. The auto sampler, which looks like a big round esky, is remotely triggered to take samples of water, helping growers to get a more accurate picture of water quality. Josh Dwyer from SenseRight explains how it works. What we've got is a, an ESCO auto sampler. So it's a device that's going to sit out on the water uh, and take samples based on automatic data that comes through on the boxes that we build. Uh, so it will sit and take up to 24 samples over a certain amount of time. Uh, that the growers will then go out and collect. 
uh, and then those samples will be taken back to the labs uh, and then science will be done on those basically. How big is it? Uh, look, it's about the size of, uh, I don't know, a, a 44 gallon drum or thereabouts, yeah. It weighs a bit. Yeah, look, once, once we load it up with ice to keep the samples cool, uh, it's probably going to be up around the 50 kilo mark. Uh, and then we've probably got about another 30, 40 kilos worth of gear and batteries and solar panels to, to keep it running as well. Explain how it works when you drop it in the water. Well, hopefully we don't actually drop it in the water. Ideally, it's going to be mounted on a pole uh, out on the aquaculture leases, uh, and then our box will sit behind it. It'll sit dormant uh, out on the water for a, as long as it needs to. Uh, the solar panel will keep it charged uh, and it will sit there until time, uh, such time as uh, it's triggered. So that might be on a rainfall event or salinity dropping or manually uh, from the guys running it, they might decide to start it sampling. Uh, from there it will start a program and it will, uh, it will do what it was programmed to do. So it might sample every hour for six hours or every five minutes for you know, up to 24 samples. Uh, and it will alert the guys as well that it has started sampling. Uh, and then from there, uh, someone has to go out and collect the samples and get them back to the lab. They've got about 24 hours, I think, once the sampling has started to get them back to the lab for the results to be valid. Inside this container, you've got a, a bunch of 20-odd yeah, bottles? Yeah, so there's 24 one-litre bottles in this, in this unit. Uh, and there's an arm on the top, so there's a, there's a, a tube that goes down into the water uh, that runs up through a pump. So the pump, once it's triggered, will draw the water up, uh, purge the lines, and then it will drop 200 mil, 500 mil, or up to a litre into a, a bottle, uh, and then it will progress to the next bottle, and then it will sit and wait for, say, an hour, and then it will draw another one litre in that bottle, and then it will just move through through the 24 bottles. So the touchpad allows us to program the unit, so that's where we tell it, you know, how many samples to take, what quantity of sampling to take, and the intervals between. Uh, that's done initially, uh, and then from there it's not really used. From there our box takes over uh, and triggers remotely all the sampling. So this removes the labour component of actually manually sampling water that someone would be contracted to do? Yeah, exactly. So, I mean, it, you normally a grower might be contracted or a third party might be asked to go out on a boat, take a sample. Uh, that obviously comes with a lot of cost and time. Uh, you've got weather constraints as well and daylight, all, all sorts of things. Uh, it's also not feasible, you know, if you want to sample for 24 hours at a one hour interval, I don't know who's going to do that for you. Uh, that's where the robots come in and this machine. How much does something like this cost? Uh, the unit itself is uh, sort of about 14 grand. Uh, and then obviously you've got other infrastructure and, and bits and pieces in our boxes to make it work. Uh, but it's sort of in that, that ballpark. Are you seeing growth in this market for remote water collection? Look, we seem to be, it's, it's early days at this stage uh, and we're sort of the first ones we know, at least in Tasmania, that are putting these things out on the water. Uh, this is the first unit and there's talks of another three, so it does seem to be expanding. Where else, uh, other industries in the country using similar sort of things? Where did you get the... Uh, the initial idea to explore technology like this? Oh, look, the auto samplers have, have been around a, a good long while uh, and they're used in all sorts of industries. I think they had uh, quite a big role to play in, in actually the COVID pandemic uh, and wastewater monitoring uh, for COVID. Um, so th that side of it's not, not really new and innovative, but what we're doing with our boxes and having the ability to, to communicate both to the boxes and back from the boxes is sort of where we add our value. So we've got a right custom firmware for our boxes uh, and we have a whole platform 
that handles the manipulation of data from all sorts of sensors through our boxes up onto portals uh, and into various databases for various customers. Uh, so we will put a, a custom uh, bit of code in there basically to trigger uh, and drive these boxes based on what the customer requires. Uh, this will end up in the Shell portal at some point? Yeah, correct. So we're building the Shell Point portal. Uh, so all the data is going to end up there for the growers uh, and we'll aggregate data from other sources as well if we get access to them. So we're taking data uh, from the NRE database, uh, we will integrate some BOM data as well uh, and, and any other valid sources that we can get our hands on. Uh, the more data we can throw together just gives a, a, a far better picture of, of, of the overall story of what's going on out in the leases. That's Josh Dwyer from Sensride talking to Larissa Smith about the auto sampler that's been deployed at Little Swanport on the state's east coast. Companies like Marine Solutions have been flat out traversing estuaries across Tasmania to also collect water samples. That's to make sure growers can harvest oysters that are safe to eat, particularly after some of these big rainfall events we've had so far in spring. Ecology consultant Sam Ibbett runs the business that's been seeing huge growth over the last two decades. I used to be employed by the university, which was Taffy back then, it's now IMAS, and I left that position and started doing some monitoring for a range of different uh, organisations, so water quality, sediments, things like that. Um, and over time, I guess I needed additional hands, and so I, I got a, a friend to help me and, and then bought a boat and then got another friend to help me and then we've sort of kept growing and uh, we've got around 20 to 22 staff at the moment, casual, full-time, some studying um, and a, yeah, a range of... I guess vessels and other equipment, specialised marine sampling equipment, and we're working right through Tasmania and, and interstate and sometimes overseas. How far would you travel in a day? I've seemed to get stuck to the desk a bit more lately, but some of our trips could be a, a daily sampling trip up the east coast and back or an overnight trip to the northwest coast or overnight or a couple of days to the west coast as well. So we do cover a lot of Tasmania very regularly. Most weeks we'd have people in each, each corner of Tasmania one way or another. On the boat and in the car? Yeah, on the boat and in the car, often towing the boat and then launching it somewhere close to where we're sampling. How far would you sample uh, in terms of water depth? The deepest sort of stuff we've done is probably around 400 metres, but mostly it could be down to 10 centimetres around oyster racks at, sh at shallow tide or you know, often out to, say, 20 or 30, 40, 50 metres near coastal environments. What sort of setup uh, would you need if you had to sample it at that depth? Well, shallow sampling can be as simple as a bucket or as complicated as all sorts of electronic probes and um, cameras and, and videos, things like that. And then as the depth increases, the complexity and the size usually increases as well. So we have a team offshore at the moment on a, a large vessel, nearly 100 metres long, um, with an ROV that's as about as big as a land cruiser driving around the seabed taking footage of things down there. That's offshore, so it's still in the marine environment, um, oil rigs, etc. But um, in the, the role we support Shellmap with some of the water quality sampling in about 200 sites through or through eight growing areas around Tasmania to make sure that the, the food safety is tippity-top for it. people that are eating oysters. They know that they've you know, been harvested in a framework that's safe to eat. So if you had to take some water samples for oyster growers across those sites around Tasmania, how would you go about doing it? Well, we have predetermined sites which take into account other inputs, so creeks or dams or houses on the shoreline where there could be a point of pollution, and we'll sample between that and the oyster farm so that if there was a, a source of pollution, we'd be picking it up. And we sample temperature and salinity and also uh, take a water sample for bacterial analysis, which we deliver to a lab within a 
23-hour time frame and then they will grow that out and see if there's any nasty bacteria in there. So it's a pretty quick turnaround. Yeah, from when we sample to the results, it's probably say within 36 to 48 hours. What happens when you have to go out and sample this water and you've got some southerlies and pretty rough conditions? Uh, do you pick a particular vessel? We do. We try and look at the forecast and often they're after sampling after nasty weather because that's when there's rainfall and, and water running off. So we, we look at the weather and we look at the tides and we try and set up a safe sampling uh, regime over the next, you know, the coming days. And we're lucky that we've got um, a range of talented staff and, and vessels of different sizes so we can usually mobilise pretty quickly and pick off all the sampling within, say, three to four days. Is that your biggest challenge, the weather? It can be. But sometimes it's absolutely magnificent too. You can have a still, sparkling, still sunny day like we've got here at St Helens and it's absolutely magnificent just burning around the oyster leases. It's almost, you know, too good to be true. Other days, you're quite right, it's a pretty miserable southerly and you've got all the beanies and coats that you can find. <laughs> the seafood industry, like many others uh, in Tasmania, are on the hunt for new recruits to fill countless jobs. Uh, is it a similar predicament uh, in, in your field or is it the other way around? We seem to get a few CVs drop into my inbox each day so there's some talented people out there looking for work um, and we can only employ as many as we have work to fill but you're quite right that the seafood industry is a really broad and complex industry which it's not just uh, farm hands on aquaculture farms or, or deck hands on boats but people in a whole range of quite technical and complex um, roles now so it's it's really progressed a long way from um, what people's perception might be to there are a lot of roles available in the seafood industry. What do you get out of the job? I really like doing some tangible things where we, we can actually make a difference if we can allow some growers to be open a bit earlier after an adverse rainfall event and the relationships with people and seeing some fantastic bits of Tasmania. Yeah it'd be a good job on a day like today wouldn't it? That's Sam Ebert from Marine Solutions talking to Larissa Smith about their work collecting water samples right across the state and uh, talking about that. We'll check when, uh, with the Weather Bureau in just a moment, see what's ahead of us. Still to come on the Country Hour, an immigration review of ag workers and the French rose being grown in Tasmania. First up, the news headlines with Ellie Ward. Thanks, Tony. The Tasmanian government is remaining steadfast in its public sector wage offer despite widespread strike action today. Parliamentary question time was dominated by today's industrial action, the largest in the public sector since 2019. Medibanks confirmed the criminal responsible for stealing customer data has released some of that information on a dark web forum. Cyber criminals have acted on their threat to release sensitive health data and other information, such as phone numbers and addresses of Medibank customers. Prime Minister Anthony Albanese says he's one of the almost 10 million customers whose data is at risk. Premier Jeremy Rockcliffe says a cable car up Kanani Mount Wellington should still be considered as a sustainable transport option. A proposal was defeated in the state's planning tribunal earlier this month, but the proponents not ruled out another appeal. And a magnitude 6.6 earthquake has struck Nepal, with local media saying six people have been killed. The quake was very shallow, happening at a depth of only 10 kilometres. Tremors were also felt in India's capital, New Delhi, and surrounding areas. More news at one. Let's check the latest on the weather now with Michael Conway from the Bureau. Hello, Michael. G'day, Tony. Well, here we go again. Beautiful day. Is it the same everywhere across the state? It sure is. There's a bit of cloud associated with some sea fog around, around still around King Island, just 
easing off there and Stanley. Looks like there might be a little bit in the far, far northeast and Flinders Island as well, just a bit of low cloud there with or fog. Uh, we had pretty extensive sea fog this morning over the north and the east of the, the maritime areas and north of the east of the state, which was um, hadn't seen it that extensive for quite a while. Okay. Uh, and, but a, yeah, apart from that, very nice and sunny, as everyone knows. So people are asking me, right, I can hear them now. What's causing that fog? Uh, the uh, high pressure ridge that's over us at the moment is just putting a like a big stamp down and keeping all the the moist air near the near the sea surface, and then it, the sea is quite cool from from the winter, so it just makes the clouds form right at the surface. Okay. Yeah. Well, Michael, and no, Sorry. <laughs> I hope I didn't uh, totally uh, bamboozle that one anyway. No, 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 you got me there. Um, yeah. No rainfall then? No, well, actually there was. There was one spot when uh, I lived down Kingston Way and I actually, we had some rain yesterday. Franklin and Grove all recorded one millimetre and it would have been about that at my place too. Okay. Um, yeah. Now the outlook, what uh, what can we expect? Well, uh, it's going to be warm today and tomorrow, looking similar sort of temperatures tomorrow as we're getting today. So along the northwest coast, around 20 to 22, and, and then mid-20s to even high 20s, of, uh, lots of other places are inland around the state. There, there's a trough coming through Thursday night, and it's going to bring some showers, especially into the, to the northwest and then into the east during the day as the trough moves up, up the east coast. Uh, and then uh, on Saturday, uh, it'll cool off, so drop down five degrees or so. Um, so ma- maximums around the 20 degree mark instead of 25 around most pl- a lot of places. Uh, just a chance of a shower around on on Saturday. Sunday though, we get a low pressure system. Unfortunately, it's going to um, spoil the party, I guess, and and bring a bit more rain. Looking at um, 10 to 20 mils generally through the north, a bit more on elevated sites and up to 5 to 10 millimetres elsewhere. So the wettest day is Sunday and then after that it's cooling down and and becoming more mild uh, early next week. Okay. Uh, have we got any warnings? There is a few that, uh, a few strong wind warnings out, so a few areas. So today we've got northwest coast, east of Flinders Island, east lower east coast and southeast. Tomorrow we have everywhere, all coastal waters except the central north and Bank Strait and Franklin Sound. And the coastal waters and swell, what's happening? Yeah, sure. So the winds today, east to northeasterly is uh, at 10 to 20 knots, reaching 25 knots about the east and northwest later in the day. The winds for tomorrow, we've got north to northeasterly is at 20 to 30 knots, although only 15 to 20 about the central north and Bank Strait and Franklin Sound, and also about the southwest in the morning and early afternoon. Winds tend north to northwesterly at 20 to 25 knots about the west in the evening. The swells we have in the west and south for both days, today and tomorrow, southwesterly swell at 2 to 2.5 metres. In the north, there's a westerly swell of under a metre today, and tomorrow it's going to be more like a northeasterly at 1 to 1.5 metres. In the east, there's a southerly swell at around 1 metre for both days. There's a northeasterly swell as well, up to a metre, but it's picking up tomorrow to be near 2 metres near Flinders Island. Okay, and the wave riders? Today, uh, at the moment, Mariah Island is on about is one metre and Cape Sorrel is at two metres. And have you got the current temps at the moment? Yeah, it's pretty warm, especially out in the west. So Strawn is, is at up to 27, Hobart's 23, Lonnie's 25, Devonport 21, Wynyard 20. 
King Island 23, uh, Flinders Island 23 as well, and 21 at St Helens. Oh, sounds great. Beauty, Michael, thanks yep. for that. Thanks, Tony. Michael Conway from the Bureau and all our West Coast residents. Drawn 27 degrees at the moment. Wow. That'd be beautiful there. Magic. If you're there, give us a yell. Say good day. Uh, on the text line, hi, Tony. I recall all those decades ago, Patsy Harmson stated the potential of a hemp industry for Tasmania and was ridiculed by some senior politicians of the day. She had vision. Thank you for that. 0438 936 is our text line number. We'll talk about uh, the federal government announcing it will review the immigra- immigration system uh, to make it simpler and stop the rotting and exploitation of some workers. That story coming up for you in just a moment. And the backpackers starting to arrive in numbers in Australia. With ABC Listen, explore a whole new world of podcasts and live radio, like unpicking fast fashion in Veronica Milsom's podcast, Threads. The marketing tricks being used on us right now. Or learning to spend less and live better with Nazim Hussain's Pineapple Project. Do we all really need it? And if we do, how do we get it for cheap? The ABC Listen app. A whole new world of live radio and on-demand audio entertainment. Download it now from your app store. Coast to Coast, this is the Country Hour with Tony Briscoe on ABC Radio Hobart and ABC Northern Tasmania. Yeah, that text on uh, hemp was from Doug of White Beach. Good on you, Doug. Thanks for that. Uh, Now, the federal government has announced it will review the immigration system to make it simpler and stop the rorting and exploitation of some workers, which could have major implications for farmers. The ag sector relies on seasonal workers and professionals to cover shortages in key areas and at key times. Some of those schemes have been plagued by shonky labour hire companies employing people on tourist visas for low wages and poor conditions. The Australian Workers' Union wants to see all that tightened up with a national system of registration for employers, tax file numbers for all employees and a pick-it-up-and-go system to enable workers to move around. Daniel Walton, National Secretary of the AWU, has told David Clawton that workers should have the capacity to change employers. Well, ultimately what we want to see is complete transparency. That is, there's proper rigour process around assessing who can bring workers in. We want to see workers have the capacity to be able to up and go. That is, that is if you're a visa worker working in agriculture and you find yourself on a bad farm, that you can shift and change employer. That doesn't happen at the moment. What happens for workers, if you raise complaints from farms at the moment, for a lot of them, particularly our friends in the Pacific, is they get told they're on the next plane back home to bring shame to their community. And so we've seen countless, countless investigations. You know, this will be another one, which will no doubt point out all the problems. But I'm hopeful now that with the change of government, there's an appetite here to actually fix it at the end of the day. Do employers put in a lot of resources to get people onto their farm or their agricultural business? So the idea that they could just up and go might be frustrating for them. Well, I think if you look at it in agriculture in comparison to everywhere else, like if you're bringing workers over to work in your business, every other industry pays for those workers to come over. In agriculture, workers have their flights deducted. They have deductions taken out for accommodation, deductions for transport, for water, for PPE. Agricultural workers in this country are treated like second-class citizens. And so I think if we're going to have a deep dive into this, we've got to have a look to say, well, what happens if you're coming over to work in construction or resources and how does that compare to agriculture? Over in New Zealand, we know that workers have got portability that they can up and go if they are working in an unsafe farm or a farm uh, who's not doing the right thing. And 
I've spoken to a lot of farmers over the time, and they, I think they will welcome that because what it will do is shake out the shonks out of the industry. That is, if everyone is up and leaving from the dodgy farms, and people are going to stay working on the good operators. And I think overall that will provide a better outcome for the industry, but also provide a better outcome for Australia and Australia's reputation for many great workers from around the world coming here to earn some money and help our agriculture industry continue to function. John Azarius, uh, who was formerly worked for Deloitte, he conducted a review for the ag sector in nine, uh, 2019. And at the time, you were uh, encouraging him to uh, put forward a plan to register all the employers. But would that stop this problem of of, of labour hire companies just disappearing as soon as they, there's a sign of an investigation and, and resurfacing under a different name? Well, absolutely. If you look in turn, up in Queensland with some of the labour hire schemes they've put in place, if you look down in Victoria, the state's moved ahead of the federal government here because they've seen the problem and the previous government failed to act. And so they've moved to protect workers in their states and put in place these programs. Now, clearly in agriculture, we've got an itinerant workforce that travel across the country, so it makes a lot more sense to have a program in right across the board, a simple program right across the board for the whole country, so that business owners know what they need to do and workers have some security of employment. Daniel Walton, National Secretary of the Australian Workers' Union, speaking there to David Clawton about a review of the immigration system, especially for ag workers. Well, for farmers stricken by labour shortages, the light at the end of the tunnel is getting closer as backpackers start returning to the regions. Tanya Murphy has this report. In the sweltering Mariba heat, Fernando Hernandez bends over furrows of dirt and pushes papaya plants into the ground. It may not be the easiest job, but the former Chilean construction worker enjoys it so much that he's returned to Skybury Farms after working there for one and a half years before COVID. He's one of a number of international working holiday visa holders who are returning to Australia after being locked out during the global pandemic. I go home for visiting my family, but they start the COVID, so I can't come back. And now I apply to the visa again, and I got it. I come back here because I have good friends and I like the job. I want to spend all my year here. For the first time since the pandemic began, Skybury Farms have a full roster of more than 120 staff, including 70 pickers and packers. The farm also employs locals and Pacific Island workers, but General Manager Candy McLaughlin says returning working holidaymakers have completed the picture. We are finding that staff who were with us two and a half years ago from Spain or Portugal and other places are returning and generally getting inquiries about employment on a weekly basis now. So from where we were 12 months ago when COVID was still very much a big part, I think that pressure is behind us. However, let's see what happens when the avocados kick in. Are you out of the woods as far as workers go or you still kind of need a, a bit more? I would comfortably say we are out of the woods, which is fabulous. Yay! <laughs> I know that's not the case for every farm that I've talked to, so that's really good to hear. Yeah, there might be still some challenges. I think Mariba still suffers from a lack of accommodation, and we know that there's a shortage there in that rental space. Cairns job agent Erin Wells recruits for around 300 rural and remote employers across Australia and says an influx of job-seeking backpackers has just arrived in the country. It's definitely picked up in the last three weeks. We've placed 28 staff in the last two days. So we've just placed 20 staff from Sweden, Spain, Scotland, UK and Canada on a mango farm on the Savannah Highway. 
And then we've got another 20 going down and starting on the 20th on another mango farm. And we've placed another 12 people in outback mining towns to work over Christmas, New Year's in hospitality. Is this the most that you've had in a long time? Definitely the most we've seen in the last three years. So now companies are interviewing two or three people for the one position because now they have choices and they're going landing and they're all within a one to two weeks starting work straight away. Although international borders reopened more than six months ago, Ms Wells says backpackers are now travelling north in larger numbers due to bad weather and increased costs of living in New South Wales and Victoria. Some were saying they were paying between 50 and 70 a night to stay in a capsule hostel in Sydney. And everyone knows that regional Queensland is a lot cheaper, so we've been getting an influx of them flying up from Sydney and Melbourne. Also, there's been a lot of people... A lot of Irish, there must be a really good flight at the moment from Ireland to Perth. There's a lot of people landing in Perth, a lot of my Irish, and I'm placing them straight from Perth, straight over to Queensland. Home affairs figures show just over 97,000 working holiday visas were granted in the 2021-22 to 22 financial year, compared with 39,500 the previous year. But they're still below pre-pandemic figures when more than 209,000 visas were granted during 2018-2019. to 2019. FNQ Growers Chairman Joe Morrow says with the peak season of mango and lychee harvest just around the corner, food producers aren't out of the woods yet. Those numbers are overall still low compared to where we were pre-COVID, so we still need to see significant increase in numbers. Uh, especially with the season around the corner where we have the peak season coming in, which is the uh, seasonal crops like larches, mangoes and avos. At this stage, it doesn't look too bad. I mean, we've got a lot of locals coming back and that's where we've been mainly focused the last three years. But at the same time, uh, as we get into the later part of the season, once we get into February in particular, we'll be looking for more staff. That's Far North Queensland Mango Chairman Joe Morrow ending that report by Tanya Murphy on the backpackers returning to Australia to work on farms. Hopefully some of those backpackers will make their way south to Tasmania as the demand continues for farm workers. You can read more of that story online at ABC Rural. Well, coming up, a beautiful story about French roses being grown in North Tasmania. Your afternoon. What is the closest you've come to a lion? Uh, the Serengeti oh. in Africa. With Helen Shields. There was a toilet and it was just a, um, a bucket, basically. I kid you not, a lion came within metres of where we were and there's a lady in the toilet and she just put her head up and she had to stay in the toilet. She's just standing there just absolutely packing it. <laughs> Your afternoon. <laughs> kind of the perfect place to be for that, I suppose. On ABC Radio Hobart. It's the Country Hour with Tony Briscoe on ABC Radio Hobart and ABC Northern Tasmania. We have Richard Bailey coming up for you very shortly with details of yesterday's power runner sale. Don't forget that text line number 0438922936, 0438922936. And if you're in the south of the state this coming weekend, especially on Saturday, you can come into the studios here at ABC Hobart and watch the launch of the Giving Tree 
And that's happening on this Saturday, a special broadcast with Rick Goddard and Lucy Braden. Between 10am and midday is the time frame. Come and see the big Christmas tree and make a donation to the Giving Tree. It's happening this Saturday. When you buy roses from a florist, do you look for colour or freshness? In the Tamo Valley, the Lee family have been working with French rose breeder Maylund for more than four decades to develop roses for the cut flower market. Larissa Smith recently caught up with grower Andrew Lee and Matthias Maylund inside the state-of-the-art greenhouse at Rosevears. This this is the variety Mint Tea, which came in approximately three years ago and is a beautiful sort of cream green coloured rose. What's interesting is you see there's a, there's a little bit of pink on the outer petal. There's the green outside that is really, really nice. The productivity is good for, for what you saw? Yes. It's, yes. So, and Vars life is excellent, which is also an incredibly important characteristic for uh, cut roses. Because this is so new, it is actually still a code-numbered variety, so yet to be officially you know, given a name. Well, because here some things arrive before they are commercial anywhere in the world. And the, 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 the game is that it is selected for here for the conditions of Australia and specifically of Tasmania. And then to see if it will be reproduced at different places. Something that can be selected here can go easily to Japan or to Mexico in high altitude. So it's that climate that is temperate, but basically with a lot of sunlight. So... It's, it's really beautiful to see it at different places of the world. Then you can gather, the, you can have an imagination. But then the color has to fit the locals. And what the local wants might be different in different places. But there, it's a peachy kind of light color, nude. Wow, it's going to work automatically. I mean, as a bunch, you see, if you take two, you put them next to each other, it's going to be beautiful. What is it like for you to come back to a property year after year and see the changes in these varieties and how they adapt uh, to conditions when they've been bred on the other side of the world. It's like sending your child to, uh, to a school abroad. And you, you come, you go check them, and they, they, they change. They are different, but they are the same. So they grow up. They're being handled by somebody else. And it's, it's fantastic to be able to follow them like that. And, and then when you have a big win on the market, like uh, the Rose Samurai, our red that was selected by their fathers, uh, basically you're so happy about it because there's a real victory on the market. There's a variety that became international and then everybody's happy with it. No, so it's really great. So how many of these varieties will end up staying within the Southern Hemisphere? Of the varieties we bring in in any given year, approximately maybe 10% will be commercial. And then out of that 10%, perhaps 30 to 40% would actually end up being grown elsewhere within Australia. You have to think about a cut flower variety as a machine to produce stem per meter square. This is an industry. And even if it looks like we are a lover of the rose, there's still some important thing that needs to be done and it's productivity per meter square, uh, disease resistance or at least tolerance, uh, the minimum care because we don't want to put too many products on it. We want to put the minimum possible because the cost goes up. Also, uh, can it resist to shock of heat, shock of rain? And so that's why we're testing a little bit everywhere. This year in Tasmania, I think you were cold and wet, if I'm not mistaken, which is not the normal weather. But that gives us a lot of data 
on the fact that they are resistant or not to that kind of weather. Before it gets to you, how long is it in quarantine for? So in Australia, we run for quarantine between four and six months after entry and then approximately another well, probably two to three months after that, we actually received the bushes here. Can so. we take a look at a few few oh, others? Meg, uh, what do you look for no. in a rose as a florist? We look for basically longevity, good colour, even whether it be red, pink, yellow, something that's a good popular colour. And these days, of course, social media leads a lot of what's fashionable and what people should be buying rather than what they might actually want. A good example of this is they're starting to be, I don't know, probably 20 years ago, we brought in roses that had like the green centres coming out of the petals. So you've got the ring of petals around the outside and then the centres are coming out. No one wanted to know about them. You know, they were too out there, very strange. Now they're suddenly popping up on Instagram everywhere and I bet that's going to be the next thing that everyone wants to see. Do you have a rose here that, that gives off a, a special fragrance or is the fragrance kind of lost in selecting for other genetic properties? The fragrance was not looked after for cut flower. Why? Simply because there was so many data that we have to look. Productivity, uh, the possibility of shipping it, how long it's going to stay in the vase. So the fragrance is something that is not that important. But the market is asking it more and more. It's not the producer that's asking it. It's not the wholesaler and it's a little bit the florist. But the florist is being pushed by the people that use the roses at the end. So we have a program right now in France with the universities to see what kind of uh, genetics is behind the fragrance. There's a um, legend about the rose that if there is fragrance, the rose will decay faster. Well, it's a real legend. It's, it's in the brain of the business but basically it's not true and we will prove it because we are working on that subject because that's a need to have real cut flower with real productivity with real life uh, base life but with a fragrance it's matthias mayland head of sales and marketing with french rose breeders mayland and also Andrew Lee from Tamer Valley Roses, the state's largest commercial rose grower, talking there to Larissa Smith. Now, tomorrow on the program, we'll feature part two of that interview on the impact of COVID on the cut flower industry and also quarantine issues associated with imported flowers. That's coming up on tomorrow morning's Rural Report in the North and also on tomorrow's Country Hour. The time on a Wednesday afternoon to check the livestock markets with Richard Bailey. How are you going, Richard? Going well, Tony. Going well, bit of warm weather on the go. Yeah, 28 degrees today. How was it at Powerani yesterday? Yeah, it was pretty warm. Yeah, um, you know, obviously we're finished by lunchtime, but yeah, warm afternoon and certainly made a bit of a difference this time last week. There were quite a lot of people, particularly up the northwest and the northeast, thinking that they won't be able to get on their paddocks for silage. And I'm led to believe that this week that changed pretty quickly and uh, the silage makers are going flat out. Yeah, around the clock. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> okay, well, was the auctioneer going flat out yesterday? Yeah, but they had a bit more to do yesterday, yeah. Um, 82 uh, trade and grown cattle. The yearlings weren't as good a quality as last week. Uh, most of them went uh, to restockers and made anywhere from 420 to 434 cents a kilo. Grown steers um, make up to 448 to go back to the paddock. A lot of them saw anywhere from 402 to 430 cents a kilo. 
Um, about a third, no, about half were, of the yarding were cows. Um, the best of these cows sold pretty well. Um, we saw a top of 364, and in fact, there were a number of cows that made over 350 cents a kilo. So, but most of those better uh, D3, D4 cows made anywhere from 318 to 364 cents a kilo. And then your, your medium weights, well, no, your, your leaner heavy cows, anywhere from 280 to 318. And then uh, medium weights, anywhere from 248 up to 280 cents a kilo. So although all those cows sold very well, just a couple of bulls, 260 to 270 cents, there was one that made over 300 cents, but it went back to the paddock. Um, over in the lamb yard, we had 2,254 lambs, um, which is a hell of a lot more than we've had for quite a while. Um, about a third of them were new season's lambs, so we're just starting that 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 stage at the moment where we start to swap over to, to new seasons. But a lot of them were, and they were advertised so that a lot of them were bigger drafts of uh, light and very small Lamb straight off their mothers. It went obviously went to restockers back to the paddock, but sold pretty well. Just on the new seasons lambs, the better better new seasons lambs made anywhere from 154 to 170 dollars a head. That's to go to butchers and and uh, processors. And then um, restockers bought better types of store lambs from 126 to 144 dollars, and some very light lambs 90 to 104 dollars. And they were pretty small. They were fresh. But they, you know, they're probably only about eight weeks old, I reckon, or something like that. I, I would have thought that the producers would be pretty pleased with that. That's, you know, it's not like it was last year where those same lambs might have made one hundred and twenty dollars. But it's a, it's that time of the year, Tony, where producers need to make a decision whether or not they sell now or they keep and take some punts on what's going to happen later on. Yeah. Um, over in the old lamb section, uh, this market was better. Um, and would be expected to be better because of what's happening interstate. Um, heavy lambs yesterday made 164 and topped at 192 dollars. Trade lambs 140 to 166, and light trade 98 to 160 dollars. Some light, then some uh, light Middle East lambs, you know, MK lambs. They made anywhere from 76 to 85 dollars a head. Little bit of restocker competition in there, anywhere from 88 to 126 dollars. But obviously, restockers are going to focus on new lambs nowadays. Smaller number, much smaller number of mutton, only 517 mutton. This market was just probably a tad cheaper in places, although the middle range sheep I thought sold pretty well. Heavy sheep made anywhere from 118 to 138 dollars, and medium weights 98 to 118 dollars a head. Okay, now uh, store cattle sale coming up. Couple of weeks. Uh, a couple of weeks, the 24th uh, at Parana. No idea of numbers yet, but uh, we will have. I'd say next week. Okay. Beauty Richard will talk mainland markets when we talk Friday. Good on you, Tony. Yes, and I believe there's a huge sale at uh, Wagga. We'll tell you about that, uh, the numbers, on Friday when we talk to Richard again. That's the Country Hour for today. Don't forget ABC Rural Online and our ABC Rural Facebook page as well. We will catch you after midday tomorrow.